For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This is Scott Richmond and Arnie Sherman. You're listening to What Do You Know on News Talk KGVO, AM 1290 and 98.3 FM. Arnie Sherman, good morning. Scott Richmond, it's a pleasure to be here once again with you this morning. Arnie, you're saying that now, but we have a surprise for our audience today. And and what is that surprise? (laughs) I'm going to interview you, Arnie. We spend... We have spent the last five plus years. Well, actually, I was going to tell you, it's our fifth anniversary. We started in October 2015. So we've been doing this regularly for five years now. And as you know, the show is... Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary, Scott. The show is What Do You Know? And I was thinking the other day, we should talk about what our listeners don't know. Good point. And so you're going to interview me apparently today and... Um, in all fairness, I'll, I think it's good for our listeners to, uh, to also hear about you. So when you get done grilling me or however you plan to do this, um, I will reciprocate with, uh, an interview of you. It's a great idea, right? Because we're going to familiarize. Well, after five years, it's about time, right? Right. And we've interviewed, I want to say, if not the tens, almost a, over a hundred guests. Right. In the five years. Yes. At least. At least 100. At least 100 guests. Well, considering sometimes we've had more than one in the studio. so We sure have. We maybe got up to 150 different human beings in here with us. Both in person, via Zoom, post-COVID, and on the phone. From as far as New York, Los Angeles. Do we do any international? um... I don't think anybody called in internationally, but we've... uh... Oh, actually, we did. We did a show with a Canadian. We we had, oh right. We did the HIV show. That's the, right. That's so, right. So we've been North America, but right we've now reached out. Right, and we're gonna, right now we're going to zero in on Missoula, Montana. Right, and Arnie Sherman, this is your Her life. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's what the judge said to me last week. But I got I got off light. Right. We're going to learn all about Arnie. Um, it's going to be a fact. I know some of this story, but he really needs to tell it for you, dear audience. And that's what he will do in the next hour. Back after this. I Here's how I captured you. Okay? okay. Here's what I thought when I thought about you. So Arnie is lives a life in film. If you know anything about characters in, in classic films, who is Arnie? Arnie is the Paul Newman character in The Hustler. He's Woody Allen's Zelig, because I know he loves that film. He's Harvey Keitel in Pulp Fiction. He's the cleaner. He's the guy. He's the fixer in Ray Donovan. So Arnie is all these characters. This is what he does, right? But give us a little background. Where were you born? Give us give, who, where are you Do from? You want the story. I want the, the long story. and winding, meandering road to Missoula, Montana. How did you get here? Do you want the gloss over version or do you want the nitty, you know, well, let me gritty ask, version of it? I'll ask you, where were you born? 
I was born in Bronx Hospital in New York City. And uh, the first place that we lived after I born was a, uh, a tenement. I lived in Dykeman Street in the housing project there. So I was, I was born and, and first grew up in a housing project in, in New York City. This is north of Manhattan for the folks that don't know the geography of the island, right? The Bronx, yes. uh, 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 Dykeman. Dykeman's in Manhattan. So, right up in the right up right, the right, right by the bridge, yeah, right by the bridge in Manhattan. That's right. Even though I was born in the Bronx, uh, we my father was working at that time when I was born for Universal Pictures in their office in Manhattan, and uh, uh, we he had a I think he was making seventy five dollars a week or a hundred dollars. I mean, not not more than a hundred dollars a week back in those days. How big of an apartment? Small apartment, one bedroom apartment. At that point, my sister, well, I had a sister that was uh, born nineteen months later. And uh, we shared a bedroom after after that for a few years. We moved out, and in, in, uh, by the time I was five years old. And where did you move to? We moved to um, Queens, and we moved to Glen Oaks in Queens, which was another at that time sort of housing project. It wasn't uh, rent control, but it was uh, it was a uh, one of these newer kind of uh, uh, developments, like Lafrac, like Lafrac. You know, hundreds of little apartments. And we lived there for a while, and then, uh, then the movie industry took a, a sort of a, a, a tough turn because color TV and all television was booming, and so they closed a lot of offices. And my father was relocated to to St. Louis, Missouri. What, so, really? Yes. So you so so from Queens, St. Louis, Missouri. By the way, before we leave Queens, your father and mother had family, right? Brothers and sisters. Do you have cousins? Yeah, I had cousins. My mother had a, a sister and a brother. My father had a brother, and they all um, at that point were married and had children. And your parents were first generation Americans, or were they born overseas? No, they were born here. And okay. my mother was eighteen when she married my father, who was twenty, right after uh, the war. And his and your grandparents came through Ellis Island. Yes. Uh, my, my grandfather uh, came uh, from Russia through Ellis Island. Well, there were four sets of parents. Three of the four came through Ellis Island. Through Ellis Island. Got it. So when you're five years old, the family moves to Queens. Queens. And then when did you move to St. Louis? When I, when I was uh, a, about uh, 10 years old. So te- why, why St. Louis? Because the movie industry was, uh, was in uh, um, turmoil and closing a lot of offices, and they sent... Uh, my father out to St. Louis to run the office in St. Louis. Got it. We only lasted there about a year. One, because uh, as as big city folks, I mean, they had only lived in New York their whole life. My father was in the military and traveled. Um, he actually liberated concentration camps in World War II as a medic. Uh, so he had traveled and seen some of the world, but he had only lived really in New York in a brief stint in California. Um, they really didn't like St. Louis. And then the St. Louis office closed, and they wanted to move him to Springfield, Illinois. And he thought St. Louis was small enough, <laughs> so he he quit a ten year career and quit the uh, film business. Quit the film business to do what? Well, he didn't know what he was going to do. He was unemployed, and uh, then in St. I, Louis, uh, yeah, came back, and we moved in with his parents, my so grand, back to New York. my paternal grandfather and, and grandmother, until he found a new career focus. So we. Uh, we lived in Oceanside in my grandparents' house. My, house. my grandfather was a, uh, a labor organizer and was a business agent for the Painters and Paper Hanger Union and had a very good district. He had Midtown Manhattan. Wow. 
And uh, he's busy. Yeah, but my father didn't want to go into that in the union work or whatever. And, and eventually, after uh, uh, a few months of being unemployed, he uh, one of our relatives, a uh, a second cousin, had married into a family that was running uh, a chain of carpet stores. Oh, that's right. Well, put a pin in that, though. Back to your grandfather. How did he get the job doing the union work? Well, my grandfather grew up. He was a, an interesting guy. He was an amateur boxer. Um, uh, he uh, he was born in Russia but moved here when he was two years old to the, to the United States. His father was a conductor on the railroad, Long Island Railroad. <laughs> and uh, he... He bounced around in jobs and became uh, finally got a job, uh, you know, as a union tradesman, as a, as a painter. And then when the depression came in, he didn't have a job. He moved to um, Buffalo, New York, and worked for two years. He was married with children. He moved there to work for two years as a painter to earn fifteen dollars a week, huh. so he could send nine dollars a week home. And he lived on six dollars. He lived in a boarding house that was a five, 50 cents a night, and 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 worked for two years as a painter to send Buffalo, money home. To send nine dollars a week home to support the family, and then after two years, you know, Roosevelt was president, and they had, uh, you know, they had a lot of uh, the New Deal and and a lot of activity going on. He moved back to Manhattan um, and uh, worked as a painter until uh, nineteen forty eight, the year I was born. What do you remember about your grandfather growing up? Well, I was very close with him. I was closer with him than my father because he had, at night when I was born, I was born on my grandparents' anniversary. So I was like their anniversary president. Wow. And um, he became a, he ran for office and got elected to be a, a, a union representative. And um, it's an important job. He kept that job for 20 years. Um, and uh, it wasn't as taxing in demand. My dad was working retail hours, 12 hours a day, six days a week. So back to your dad, he, de- he got a job with Alan Carpet. Carpet, it started off as a measure boy installing carpet he was he was 20 uh he was uh, at that time 31 years old but he started from the bottom measuring rooms installing carpet salesman worked his way up to be general manager of the company for our audience in missoula <laughs> alan carpet is the great floors of uh was the great floors of, of new york yeah they new were all Jersey. over and, and and connecticut and massachusetts it was all on it was the a east coast huge chain point. and that was your cousin's business yeah he married the, the owner's wow daughter okay so, uh, yeah, I spent a lot of time with my grandfather um, doing things. He w- didn't spend much time with his two sons, my father and... and so he was spending time with you. Yeah. Did he speak... Up did, 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 was his English good? Oh, well, yeah, he was he born... Was part, he was... Yeah. Okay, you're, okay, right, sorry. What happened a lot, and, and you, you probably know this growing up, I'm not telling you anything new, the first generation Americans sort of eschewed, you know, anything about their, you know, being an immigrant. Right. So he didn't learn to speak. He didn't go. He didn't go to... You know, synagogue. You know, right. He didn't speak. He spoke a little Yiddish, but he didn't. He wanted to assimilate. Yeah, he wanted to assimilate. He wasn't reverent in that in that way. Um, and uh, you know, he became a you know a, a cigar smoking amateur boxer, painter, all around. You know, likable guy. Likable guy. guy. Everybody liked my grandfather. That what was his name? Harry. Harry ha- Sherman. Harry Sherman. Or for you know, on his birth certificate, it said Heschel. And what did your mom do? My mom worked off and on in the jewelry business. She 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 got a job at 16 years old at Bonwood Teller in the millinery department, which is hats and <laughs> right. pins and all that. It was her first job. The interesting job of all of my relatives was my grandmother, my my uh, uh, father's mother, Rosalie. You know Sherman, but originally her her name maiden name was Haas. 
She was the first woman ever hired at Underwood Typewriter. Wow. And she, there were over 200 men working in the office, and she was the only woman. And I once asked her, I did, you know, how did you feel about being the only woman working in a you know, male company? And she said, it was great. Every, people brought me flowers. They took me out to lunch. <laughs> she liked the, the perks. And she met my grandfather there. He had been working there part-time, and they started going out. And she said uh, he, he asked her to marry him. Paint a picture, Arnie, for us. <laughs> Growing up in New York, so you're back from St. Louis. What's New York like in the 50s and the 60s when you're kind of this, all this is starting to, you're becoming yeah. aware of it? Let me just finish the one thing. My yeah. grandmother said, I won't marry until I have a one carat diamond ring. <laughs> and they were engaged for almost eight years until he was able to save up to buy her. Are one. you serious? Yeah. That's yeah. lovely. Yeah, he was a t- determined guy. How- New York was a lot like, for those of you who are listening in who remember the Honeymooners, <laughs> Ralph Cramden being the bus driver in kind of stark-looking apartments. Right. And, you know, you had a TV set with a big magnifying glass in the front so you could see the little screen made it bigger so you could see what was going on. You know, subways, you know, were 15 cents. But it was bustling, right? It was was bustling. There was a lot of action. There was a lot of activity going on. Right. Um, You could, uh, you you could feel the energy. People were, you know, were free to, you know, even as a kid at at 10, 11, 12 years old, before we moved out to uh, Long Island, I would tell my parents I was going out to play baseball and I would, uh, I would get on a bus and take it to the subway and go into Manhattan and hang out for the day, walking around. I used to sneak into the movie theaters by hanging out at the exit door, and when people came out, I would walk, walk in, in. And, yeah, and, and watch movies. <laughs> and that's the start. That was probably started your fascination with movies, in addition to what your dad did. Well, my uncle, ha- Uncle Harry. N- well, not Uncle Harry. Okay, Uncle Georgie, George Sherman, uh, um, was my grandfather's youngest brother. And when he was fourteen years old, he ran away from home, hopped a freighter. From New York to L.A., went around the Horn to L.A., wow. got a job working in the the uh, uh, the film archives for Republic Pictures, and worked his way up to the time he, until by the time he was in his late twenties, he was directing movies. Are you kidding no, me? Including, <laughs> including um, the the uh, Three Musketeers serial. They had serials yeah, in yeah. those days. They were short movies, about 20, 30 minutes that they used to pair with a feature film. So you get two for one. And the the uh, the thing about the three mus- musketeers was, one of the three musketeers was John Wayne before he got to be well known. So my uncle, my great uncle George was very close with John Wayne and he, and he directed over 70 movies. And so that's how my father got to work for Universal because of ultimately George was uh, making films for Universal after he left Republic. Was George the first of that generation to go west? Yes, he was a trail. He was a frontiersman. Well, he has. I mean, I would love to, you know, really know his full life story. There's hardly anybody around anymore could tell that story. I found a lot of it by digging around. But again, at 14, uneducated. Yeah, he was a. He was. He was five foot two. He was a short man. Right. Went out and somehow worked his way up to become a feature film. Directed over 70 feature films. With lots of famous stars, Errol Flynn, Jeff Chandler, you know, Victor Mature did did more movies with John Wayne than anybody except John Ford. 
does he have any um his children did you keep in touch with them those are your aunts and uncle well no they no, were no, they're third, they co- third cousins not not much because he went off to california everybody was in new york we rarely saw we saw him at funerals and major anniversaries when he came so he, he, he was present when he needed to be present he, yeah he was present when he needed and then he directed some tv stuff he directed some sea hunt Gentle Ben, Daniel Boone, he moved into that area later on in his career. So when he came into town to visit, did you just like talk to him? And- oh, yeah. He would bring pictures. He, I, had, I lost it somewhere. I had a box of almost every Hollywood star with a picture, two Arnie signed by. And his, his, he used to throw parties in his house in Beverly Hills. And his claim to fame was he had a big white baby grand piano. And every star that came to his house signed the piano. Signed the piano? So he had hundreds of signatures on this piano. Ladies and gentlemen, for those that don't know Arnie well, he's a collector of of rare items and collectibles in the sports space. But I'm imagining this was what started you is some of this film. Well, stuff. I had some of this, and it was I, w- I wish I still had it. Well, what did and, you do with it? You know, I left it at home when I went away to college. My mom probably threw it out or whatever. You know, I just don't know. It disappeared somewhere. But that's my my father got into went out for a year to, after World War II to to work in the industry. Um, and he was a cameraman. My uncle got him a job to learn how to be a cameraman. But my father was, a, a, at, at that age, was a very strikingly handsome man. He looked like Errol Flynn. And everybody, that when he was doing camera work, they kept on saying, well, why don't you get in front of the camera? And they had a vision of my dad, as my dad t- tells me, of him being like the good-looking bad guy. You know, he wasn't uh-huh. an actor uh-huh. trained, but they would have him, you know, as part of a gang of some sort. That sort of, and he was thinking about doing it. But but he had left his high school sweetheart back in New York, my mother, who freaked out about the idea that he might stay in L.A. and become in the movie business. Sure. So she did every she used all of her feminine wile to lure him back to lure him back to New York and, and marry her. Let's do a quick idea. Our guest is Arnie Sherman. We are you are listening. What do you know? And we're learning a lot more about Arnie on, on this show. Let's get right back to it. So to set us the stage. We are back in New York. You've come back from St. Louis. What year are we in and what grade are you in? Well, I came back and uh, it was uh, 1959 and I was uh, in uh, seventh grade Mm -hmm. and I came back and we were in Oceanside for a while, which has, as uh, some people know, it's not part of the New York public school system. Yeah. And then my dad got the job. We were talking about Alan Carpenter and then we moved back to Glen Oaks. To, to Queens. Yeah, to Queens. So Oceanside at that time in the 50s was a, a, a growing kind of suburb, right? Oh, it was, it was a hot suburb to be in because it was close to the water. Right, it was beautiful. Yeah, it was a nice place. They, they had a Nathan's on the way to Long Beach. Mostly Jewish? Jewish, Italian. Italian like, you know, I mean, it was, Irish Catholic. Yeah. So like everything Long Island was... It's all mixed. It was, you know... Right. And, and how we, did everybody get along? And how did well, they, it was tight. You know, the house wasn't designed for uh, you know f- the four of us to live there with. So my that's your. How about the the just the d- friends, groups of friends? How did you get along? I with didn't that? have many friends there because I was new, you okay. know, and coming in. And then uh, and then I was uh, wrestling, you know, in school, and, you, and I broke my ankle, and so I was you know not able to participate. But we shortly we didn't we didn't live there more than a year, and we moved back to to Glen Oaks, going into eighth grade. Yeah. Okay. So, so what happened was uh, I was still I was still in seventh grade, but I was young in seventh grade. I was twelve, and um, when we finally moved in nine, to Long Island, I had taken I was put into this is more detail than anybody listening wants to know. 
put out a thing in New York called SP, Special Progress Class. And I you take an aptitude test, and somehow that day I was on. And so when I moved out to Farmingdale, Long Island, they bought a house. They had enough money to buy a house. You know, in 1961, the house was, I think, cost uh, $16,000. So you and early. your sister and your two parents. Yep. And when I went to school, they t- instead of going to eighth grade, they put me from seventh grade right into high school. Oh, my. So you skipped two grades. Yeah. So it was, it was, in retrospect, not a good thing to do because I was much younger than everybody else. I graduated high school at 16. Talk, you talk about that. What was it like trying to? Well, trying out for athletics, it was hard. You know, I wanted right. to play. I wanted to play sports. You know, I finally was able to play uh, lacrosse, but I wasn't as good as everyone because I'm, you know, 13, 14 years old, and everybody else is 15, 16. Years so you're old. two years younger. Yeah, I'm basically two years younger than everybody else. Do you feel like that experience was what informed kind of how you carried yourself? Like. Well, actually, it had what what I what I now can look back on as sort of a re- reverse effect. I became more introverted because I couldn't be successful at what I was doing. I wanted to, you know, my parents wouldn't let me play football. They wouldn't sign for that because they thought it, they they thought it'd be too damaging. And they had a vision in their mind that I was going to be a medical doctor, and they didn't want me getting hurt, ruining my hands, whatever. They had this weird. Thing, but they didn't know what lacrosse was, so they didn't. They signed to allow me to play lacrosse. How did you get to lacrosse? Who who was it? A coach? A friend of mine. A friend of mine was playing it and said, "You ought to come and play." And you know, you look, you know, you're the size. I was, I was five foot ten when I was fourteen years old, so I had some size to me. I also threw shot put in high school, but again, I wasn't, I wasn't the best on the team because I was so much younger than everybody else. What but was I was on the track team and and I was on the lacrosse team. What kind of dating life could you have as a young? High schooler because every girl was two years younger than you, older than you. Yes, it was. It was not fantastic. So not until you got to later in high school that yeah. you could date younger high school students that were your age. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I mean, basically, that was. Yeah. Arnie was always playing with the numbers. It's <laughs> smart, actually. Arnie, I. You know, it's so funny that you say that though because you are an introvert extrovert. That is, you're you're not just, I mean, I see you as extroverted only because I know you and you're comfortable. Right. But, and we talk about stuff, but you're right. Like, I could see that side of you where you're kind of hanging back and just waiting to figure out where you're going to come in. Well, in my high school yearbook, I never really saw myself that way because you're not so introspective when you're young. No. But I remember the principal signed my high school yearbook and put next to my picture, the quiet man. Yeah. And... <laughs> I came out of my shell in one when one specific thing happened to me in high school, and uh, what was that? Well, I ended up also I, I ended up being president of what they call the history club, and my favorite teacher in high school was the advisor to that club, and he had just returned from being in the Peace Corps, and he was a really nice, cool young. I mean, I thought of him as a you know older teacher, but he's probably twenty four years old. He wasn't that old, and. Uh, we were having a memorial uh, ceremony at the school to unveil a big portrait of John Kennedy, who had been assassinated. What year is it, 63, 64? No, this is like 66 uh, uh, or 7. 60, okay. Or 68, maybe even in there. I don't remember exactly. I was a junior in high school. Okay. So it's probably 66, 60, uh, 60, 67, 68. Uh, no, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. I got it all wrong. See, that's what happens when you age. It was, it was like 63, 64, so it was only... Right, 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 right. Um, and uh, Bobby Kennedy came to... He was the United States Senator from New York and came to the school to speak at this ceremony. 
And I, I was up on the stage. I was the first time in my life I was on a stage. I'd never been in a school play. I'd not been a tree in any event. I mean, I just, I, w- I wasn't involved in any of that. We're sitting on the stage and the faculty advisor's name was Mr. Holtzman, uh, came over and said, are you ready? And I said, well, ready for what? He said, oh, I, I guess I forgot to tell you, you're introducing Senator Kennedy. <laughs> and this was not just to the student body, the parents, every, it was like 5,000 people there. My graduating class in high school was about 900. So the whole school was there. So three 3,000 students plus their parents. I mean, the whole, this whole, you know, basketball arena there was full. Sure. And I, and I was not prepared to said, well, you have to go up there and lead him in the, in the pledge of allegiance and introduce Senator Kennedy. And I had never spoken yeah, outside of in front of a class. And I didn't even like speaking in front of a class at that point to, to an audience, you know, I screwed up my courage and, and went out and it was actually a, a Do you remember the empowering feeling? experience because I yeah. said I said in a meek voice I think can I have your attention please and everybody shut up immediately <laughs> so this is pretty cool <laughs> <laughs> the power of the mic and then I said I would like to lead you in the pledge of allegiance and would you all rise and everybody stood up we did the pledge of allegiance and then afterwards you know I'm standing there and going like you got to introduce the senator and I had nothing prepared so all I said was ladies and gentlemen senator from New York. Robert Kennedy. That's all I said. And that, you know, that's all I had to say. Everybody knew who he was. What happened? Though? Years he later, come- I met Senator Kennedy right before right, he died. Right, right, you know? right, But uh, it, was, it was an empowering experience to have to see what kind of influence you could have, you know, by being a little bit right. more demonstrative in your behavior. So that was a, that was a good experience Do you remember me. what it was like after that day? Like, did people come up yes. to you? Yeah. And what was that like? It was like... They they associated me in some way with Senator Kennedy because he came over and shook my. I mean, I had touched a living god in a way. Absolutely. At that point in time, he had not announced his run for presidency yet, but he was, you know, he was the brother of the slain president. A couple, you know, a couple of years after that happened, and he was a very, you know, a, a, you know, emotional speaker, you know, and a very charismatic human being. So I I had a little bit of good positive feedback. Right. But the Long Island. Daily News, you know, you know, Newsday, which was the Long Island yeah. paper, had on the, there was a section in it of, you know, local news, and they had a picture of me and Kennedy with the, with the picture of his brother on the front page. Amazing. So I was I was a 16-year-old kid, you know, in a suit and tie, standing next to Bobby Kennedy. Do you have a clipping of that? Yeah, I have it somewhere. Can we, see, can I see that? Yeah, I'll probably, I'll go look for it. Incredible. But anyway, right. um, so my parents were adamant that they wanted me to be a doctor. Yeah. Uh, it was, you know, at, at some point, you know, the a Jewish the, doctor, well, an immigrant dream, right? Come right. here. You know, it's not, it's not only, a, it's an ethnic dream. Indians that Pakistan, That's I right. mean, everybody comes here, they want to be a professional and be a doctor. Right. And I really, you know, I was swept up in it, but I really, in my heart of heart, didn't want to be a doctor. My, my passion at that point was literature. And I had written unbeknownst to my parents, even because I had written a bunch of poems that got published in the school literary magazine. And, uh, my English teacher, you know, encouraged me. He said, you know, you have, uh, you know, great potential. You have a good vocabulary. You have a good way with work. My grammar was crappy because I had gone to four or five schools before I went to high school. And in every school I had gone to, they were teaching vocabulary in a different year than I was there. I mean, grammar. So I never learned grammar. I never had a class in grammar. What do you think sparked your interest in poetry or creative writing? Like anything in, that... Re- well, Yes. Um, 
you, you remember in real time at that point, things were happening like uh, the peace movement and you had Bob Dylan and Phil Oaks oh, and okay. all these people expressing themselves with beautiful, you know, Mr. Tambourine Man. And I mean, all the things that were being written like a Rolling Stone, all that stuff was going on. You know, I had seen, even in high school, I had seen Dylan live down in the village. So there was some of that going on and just seeing if I could express myself in a creative way like that. I, I, read, I wrote some fiction stories also, but the poetry seemed to have captured people's interest. Arnie, you were, but it's so interesting because the Dylans and the Phil Oaks and the Woody Guthrie, they're all, of their time, they were, you know, Well, we used to, those I voices. mean, radio. I mean, I remember as you right. do, Cousin Bruce Morrow, Cousin Brucey, who's still doing radio on Sirius. Yes. He was, he was, you know, I thought of him as an adult, but he wasn't really that much. He was probably in his mid, early 20s. He's in his 80s W-A-B Seedles. Right, <laughs> A-B-C, you know, and, uh, um, yeah, music was a huge, huge thing. Movies, music, and, of course, TV. Sport. And sports. And sports. Because talk about, but talk a little, all right, so. Right. Arnie is playing it down. <laughs> He's a huge sports fan, a huge Yankees fan. Right. Well, I was born literally close, you know, in, in, you in the shadows to, of Yankee Stadium. But then moved to Queens where you're near the new Shea Stadium. Right. I was at the first game ever played at Shea Stadium. Which is incredible. That's was against 62 the or 63? 63 against the Pittsburgh Pirates. Uh, rookie, The rookie star for the Pirates was uh, Willie Stargell back in those days. And the Mets lost 5-4. to four. Wow. Um, and... Uh, I think the the losing pitcher was Larry Bernarth, if you can remember that name. <laughs> yeah. So, but I did go to Shea Stadium, but I was more interested always in the New York Yankees. Why? Well, because as a kid growing up in that era, football wasn't that big, and pro basketball wasn't that big. Most of the, but baseball was ever. I mean, they would broadcast the World Series on the on the speakers in the public schools, and during my formative years, the Yankees in in a, in a I think an eleven year period they were in the world series nine times they were dominant they were dominant you know and they you know and I, i'll never forget one that one year where they were playing the dodgers you know who had yeah who had dissed new york by leaving <laughs> right and i remember listening in the school on the loudspeaker um sandy koufax striking out mickey mantle roger maris and tom tresh in an inning it was like he was like a god like how could you do wound. that how could you do that how could you strike out the heart of the yankees especially audience? sandy kofa yeah especially <laughs> sandy so uh yeah i was a big uh, i was a, a bigger ba uh, baseball fan during that time and and did you go to games on your own or with your friends i or? went to, i went to some games my grandfather would take me to some games did he in those days, you could—he had a, a a badge that looked like a policeman's badge, being a and union you officer. In. You just flash your badge and walk into the stadium. <laughs> so we would go to you know, we would go to baseball games. I went to—I think I went to one basketball game with my father, and I think I went to one baseball, two baseball games with him, and all the other times if I went with if it wasn't my friends, I would go with my grandfather. So my mother's father died when I was six months old. So I really never met never, him. You never, I never, got, never knew him. Did you go to uh, New York Knicks games? Basketball. I, I once went because I know you're to, a big Knicks fan. I once went to a triple header. They used to, I, they may <laughs> even still, still do that at Madison Square Garden. The high school game was Pal Memorial with a guy named Lou Alcindor was <laughs> playing, who has our, our sports informed listeners know is Kareem Abdul-Jabbar in high school. And then I watched NYU play with Hap Hairston and Barry Kramer were the stars 
of that team. Barry Kramer. And then I saw the next play. You know, so so I I had gone at I, the garden. This was at the garden. garden yeah, forty eight. What's this was the old garden. The old garden. You know, and they used There's to play. So tri- they used to play triple headers. High, high school game, college game, pro game. Arnie, we would be remiss <laughs> if we did not talk about food growing up. Oh, you had told me once that there was a place with the automat. Yeah, the automat. Talk about the automat. Horn and Hardut, which was a uh, a. a Retail food company that that made pot pies and baked beans and rice pudding opened this modern, you know, twenty cent twentieth century food place, which had these little glass doors you walked in and you put your change in the in the slot and and so it would say ham sandwich, salami sandwich, uh, <laughs> custard pie, whatever you were wanted was behind a. A, uh, a stainless a window. steel window that you could mm-hmm. look in. It was kind of a little bit of a fraud because there were people behind there putting stuff into the <laughs> shelf. So it wasn't like fully automated. Like, you know, sometimes in Japan, you have these sushi things when they yes. come out on a train. This wasn't that. There were these windows, and you could put your cup under to get coffee, and you you put 10 cents or, and turn the crank, and the coffee came out. So it was sort of, it was supposed to be an, that's why it was called the automat, the automated food system. And I think they lasted until maybe there was one last maybe 10, 12 years ago. So but they, you go online and look look up Automat. You can see these big, shiny, stainless steel panel of windows and there's food behind each one of them. But when they opened the door and you took it out, you could look behind and there were people, you know, with chef hats and white aprons making the food and just sticking it in. The, what it did was it got rid of, you know, waiters and waitresses. You didn't need any of them. You went and got the food yourself. You know what? And it, everything that goes around comes around. They've yeah. now moved towards back to yeah. You that. could you could you could open up a new one now. It'll be Touchless. a lot of be a lot of nostalgia for. It. So I went. I went. I graduated went, high school at sixteen. I turned seventeen. I went to I went to college. Started pre med. I started pre med. I think it was the the funny experience about going to Cincinnati was I was seventeen years old. I'd never been on a plane alone. And the for the, for those of you who've traveled much, the Cincinnati airport is not in Ohio. It's in Kentucky. So I'm on the plane, and the pilot comes on and says, we're getting ready to land our, in Newport, Kentucky. And I freaked out completely. <laughs> I'm supposed to be going to Cincinnati. How did I screw this up? What's Newport, Kentucky? You know, and I asked some people. They finally said, oh, it's, it's just across the river. It's where the airport is. And I got off, and somebody said, if you want to go to, I said, I'm going to the University of Cincinnati campus. They gave me some instructions, take a bus, and they sent me to a bus. And the bus went from Newport across the, uh, river. the Ohio River. Right. And the first stop at the first light on the bus in Cincinnati. A guy walks, I'm looking out the window to get to what, the, what is this Cincinnati place? And a guy walks out of a bar, turns around. He has a knife sticking out of his chest, a white shirt, knife sticking out of his chest. He falls down on the sidewalk dead. The bus driver, because he had a, uh, a CB radio called the police. And we had to sit there and wait for the police to come and, you know, ask everybody, you know, cause we were at the scene of a murder. I lived in New York my whole life. I never saw anybody murdered. I my first minute in Cincinnati, Ohio, Murder. I see somebody die. So that that kind of set up my my uh, yeah. sojourn into uh, at the university. Do you remember of getting to campus and telling that story to people? Yes, you know, and they were all you know thought I was making it up, or I mean, no, nobody took it as seriously as I you know as I thought. This is nineteen sixty six, sixty seven. This, no, this is 1965. 65, okay. 1965. And so I'm a parents freshman. Are st- parents are still in um, Farmingdale at this point, right. not, not Boston. Right, no, they're still in Farmingdale. So you're going back. 
I wanted to go further away. I was trying to get as far away as I could. But right, my yeah. parents were fairly um, uh, restrictive. They didn't want me to go to the South because at that point, civil rights workers were being killed. And they thought that uh, um, being, being of, uh, uh, and some of them were Jewish that were being killed that were working with, sure. uh, with the Afro-American community in the South. They thought I might be a target of something. And they didn't want me to go really too far west because they didn't want me to be too far away. You know, because they realized I didn't. I'm 17 years old. You know, I'm going to be off on my own for the first time in pre-med, 19 credits, at a, you know, all by myself, not a relative in sight, not a friend. Didn't know anybody at the university. I went there because they gave me a scholarship. to the first school that responded to my, you know, your right. application process. They offered me a scholarship. I, you know, I, and they had a medical school. So the, the thought was, you go there and do well in pre-med, you're going to get into medical Your parents didn't go out with you to look at the school. You just no, went. No, I just went. 1965, by yeah, yourself. By myself. Two years younger than probably most freshman enrollees. Yes. Which is... You know, just turned... I was, you know, most of them were 18. I was. I had just turned 17. So, so you're a year and a half younger. I'm a, little bit, I'm a little bit younger. My grandfather took me out and we went to Barney's in New York, which at that time was not... An upscale, upscale right. men's clothing place. It was more like a normal clothing store. But he bought me my. I didn't have, I didn't have much clothes. I didn't have. I didn't have. A, I was not a, a wardrobe. Uh, uh, not like you are today. No, not like I am today. But he bought me my entire wardrobe. And I remember it was five hundred dollars. That's what he gave me to go to college. And we bought we bought shoes and socks and underwear and shirts and slacks and belts and a a, a cranberry blazer and a navy pea jacket and. I bought every single thing so that I could go to college. And when you were going to school in 1965, you're dressed you're dressed well. You're going to college. You're not schlumpy. You're not right. wearing a I sweatshirt. I had penny loafers. I look. I had. Uh, I had. Uh, you know, V-neck sweater. I right. had. A, I had a collegiate. Norm, a collegiate. Basically, we went there, and I said, "I'm going away to college. Can you help me pick out a college wardrobe?" I didn't even know really what they would wear at, at you know a university. Any desire to play sports in college? Um, you played pickup I basketball. thought about playing. No, I thought about playing baseball. Okay. Um, because I was, I, I never played little league baseball, but I played in a lot of, you know, amateur pickup games and I was a pretty decent pitcher. Huh? But when I kind of, and they had a freshman baseball team at the university of Cincinnati, along with the varsity team, they had a freshman team and the Cincinnati baseball teams claim to fame in those days was. Sandy Koufax had gone to the University of Cincinnati on a baseball scholarship. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, and I didn't know it either until I got there. And so I worked with my, you know, you get assigned a roommate. My roommate was a high school basketball star. I mean, and uh, he, he wasn't good enough to play in the pros because he was offsized, but he played very well at, uh, at uh, Youngstown High School. His parents, ironically, I don't know how we got paired together, but his parents were concentration camp survivors and met at Auschwitz. And survived and got married, and, wow. and Marv, who was very um, a serious guy and was two years older than me, you know, he's now he's now uh, the president of the L.A. Jewish uh, Foundation. Is that right? Yeah, he went to law school. I mean, he was very serious. He probably kept me from flunking out of college by being a serious roommate my first couple of years. Everything happens for a reason. Yeah. So you were so. You're you're at University of Cincinnati. You start pre med, but you kind of don't go there. And well, then you're coming back during the summer and for holidays. Yeah, back I started to- pre med, and I was terrible at it. I couldn't, you know. I was. I it was a raw. It was boneheaded of me to think I could carry 19 credits of organic chemistry, vertebrate physiology, calculus, 
right. 17 years old, be alone and be exposed to a college campus where Abby Hoffman was. I mean, there was all this stuff going on on campus. He, Abby Hoffman went to the University of Cincinnati, one of the Chicago Seven. There's all this stuff going on. Everybody's older than me. You could drink three two beer at 18, you know, 3.2% right. alcohol. People were going to the, the, the hot spot was the mug club. What was that? I, I I went there a couple of times. I, I shouldn't have been able to be let in, but I was old, you know, I was you older. Looked, you looked the part. I had shaggy hair and wire room glasses and you know, I would you know, I would be able to get in, but I, I couldn't really, you know, interact very well at that level. I was nervous about it. And of course there's girls on campus. There's all these distractions. Pl- card playing. I mean, you know, all the stuff that a dorm has, which is good, which is a good experience. It's a good it was great for you, though. Social, so, socializing. But it was very hard to focus on academics in that environment. So when did you pull the plug on pre-med? When I was on academic probation for a quarter. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the wake-up. I'm going to lose my scholarship if I don't get my act together. Oh, my gosh. So I'm, I'm thinking about what Distractions. I can't tell my parents. You know, they're going to go right. crazy. Um, plus, I had to work. My parents didn't didn't have much money at that point in time sure. to pay me. I, I had, I usually held two or three job part-time jobs while I was taking 19 credits while I was you know doing all this stuff. I had, I when had did you crazy, sleep? uh, who knows, but I, I was, I was painting warehouses. I was, uh, I was working in the residence halls and RA, you know, residential advisor. What I was, was your guilty pleasure while you were doing all these things? Did you have a guilty pleasure you know, in college? Well, because, because you're a man of, there are things that you like to do, and you've de- developed would, those tastes over the years. I would did it start here. It didn't start not food. Later. Not food. No, I was actually in great shape. I didn't eat that much. You know, you ate in the dorm. You I ate still in great shape. And eat you know, you ate, you ate in the cafeteria and all of that. Music. Yeah. So I was re- I was assessing what could I do that would keep me close enough that my parents would go crazy. And the one class that I was doing very well in was psychology. Ah. And you could go to medical school with a psychology degree, undergraduate psychology degree. Because you could say you were working towards being a psychiatrist. Sure. So I switched my major to psychology. And for the last, we were on a quarter system. For the last uh, two and a half years, I made Dean's List every quarter. So I found something that I resonated with. And I made Dean's List. And, you know, my grade point average went up. And, you know, everything, you know, went great. Arn, so you're doing that. Do you have friends that... Marv is one of them that you still keep in touch with from Cincinnati. Yeah, there are there are a few that I keep in touch with, and you know, not they're they're all off in different places, you know. And of course, we're all older now, and uh, and uh, but they all turned out all all, all my friends turned out uh, that that I was close to turned out uh, you know living uh, fulfilling lives lives of uh, of interest to them. As we kind of we we are talking to Arnie Sherman, my co-host and guest interview <laughs> subject here on What Do You Know. Arnie, in our remaining minutes for this show, because it's part two's coming. Uh-huh. Um, we, only, we only got to the point where I'm 18 I know. Years I'm, old I'm, I had to write down the, the timeline, and I just see where we are, and I know we have another show, if not two here. <laughs> um, in Cincinnati is where you met your wife. Well, actually, if we're going to be honest, I met my first wife. I was married. Oh, okay. I was, we're uh, always going to be honest. We have to be we honest. We have to be honest. So I was uh, 19 years old, and... Uh, Marv's high school sweetheart, who he's still married to all these years later, had a roommate who was local woman from uh, Cincinnati, uh, and uh, they fixed me up on a blind date, and we went out, 
and um, it was okay. Right. I didn't. I didn't really say, "Wow, I've met my dream girl." But apparently, <laughs> she went home and told her family that she met her dream guy from New York. Yeah, and the first date we ever had, we went to see uh, Steve McQueen and the Sand Pebbles, <laughs> which was a great movie, and uh, with Richard Crenn and Steve McQueen. And then I didn't ask her out again. I didn't ask her out again. And about two months later, I ran into her at a cafeteria. And, you know, you feel kind of, you know, awkward at that point. Sure. I said, uh, oh, I'm, I, I, you know, I'm, tr- I'm making excuses. And I asked her out again. I said, we should go out again. And, and we went out. And we started dating. And, and my mother, who eventually figured out that I, I, I wasn't going to go to medical school and I didn't have a first good two years. She thought I should get married young just like she did and my father because they were 18 and 20. My mother had me when she was 19. Right. My grandfather was 46 when I was born. I mean, it was a young family. <laughs> Very young. Those days it was young. She really sort of got into cahoots with Beverly, who was my first wife, and all, all of a sudden I was getting married. I got married before I graduated. I got married four. I got married. In, that was more commonplace, right? To, to, yeah, get married in college. You remember the, the, the things called you would get pinned? Yeah. You know, and they engaged and they get married. So I got, got married and, uh, I, I, you know, I, I, Beverly is still alive somewhere and, you know, I I don't wish her any, she probably had a very fulfilling, wonderful life, but I really realized you're too young. Even the day I was doing it, that this is not what I should be doing. Arnie, (laughs) I I didn't, I forgot. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You're right. And that lasted a few years and I, we, we, we divorced. And you stayed in Cincinnati. Well, I, yeah, I went to college, graduated college. And then I was going to go into the, I was draft, you know, they used to have the draft and I was one a, yeah. And it was good shape. And the Vietnam war is going on. This is my 1967. This is no, this is 1969. Uh, uh, nine. Nine. Oh geez. Right in the belly of it. And there's a, and there's a lottery. I mean, there's a draft and I'm one a, and all my friends are sitting around saying, I'm going to Canada. One of them went to officer training. One of them went into the reserves. They're all trying to figure out how to def- defer being sent over there. Cause I had friends from high school that were all dead now. Not because you're not patriotic. No. She didn't believe in this war. Cause it was a war. Well, of- I didn't, you know, I, I had a, I had a career goal and all of a sudden, you know, nowadays we have a volunteer army. People go in the right, army and sacrifice right. and defend their country, and it's great. But they volunteer to do it. They right. make a conscious decision. Right. This is one A on your draft card. You show off your draft board, and you take a physical, and then you go. You're in the army. So that's what I was facing when my senior, when I graduated my senior year, that I wasn't going to be going to graduate school. I had I had been accepted into NYU uh, graduate program in psychology. And I was going to come back to New York and get my doctorate, and you know that I was going to pursue pursue being a, a clinical psychologist. And uh, um, my draft board says you got to show up in September. So you remember that day? Yeah. What happened? Well, I decided at that point that I would go. I mean, I'm not going to I'm not going to try to run away. I'm not going to try. I I decided it was a, it was a numbers game. I didn't know how much longer the war was going to last, but it had been going on for a long time, and it, and there was a lot of at peace activism, and it was winding down. I thought, even though there was horrible news every day, I was going to go into officer training. I said, if they take me and I pass my physical, which I thought I would, right, I'm going to go into officer training. It takes about six or nine months to go through officer training, and I was just going to play the odds that by that time, the conflict might be over or in its last throes or whatever. So that was my plan. I wasn't going to leave the country like some, you know, some of my friends went to Canada. 
some of them, you know, uh, again went into officer, tr- you know, went into right. reserve. I said, I, if they draft me, if I if if that's my fate, I might as well be an that officer. Must have been so scary. I'm, I'm, I don't want to be. I don't want to be an infantryman. I'm going to be an officer. I'll no go. bone spurs there, folks. My dad was in the army. My aunt, my my good right. uncle, my uncle Harry was in the Marines. My father's brother, my uncle Alan, was in the Navy. I'll do my time. I'll go, but I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I don't want to go in the middle of this. Right. You know, my dad when he went, he didn't get drafted. He volunteered. Every one of my relatives volunteered. Volunteered. I, that was their duty. I had a different career path, and that war went by. By '69 was very unpopular. So put a pin in this. So your officer training school, officer training is what I was going to do. Going to do. What happened? Well, a friend of mine named John Malzone said, hey, what are you going to do till you get drafted? I said, I don't know. He said, I just got a summer job at the Ohio Bureau of Vocational Rehabilitation. <sighs> Pays 100 bucks a week, which was not bad money in those days for somebody, you know, young. You know, I was just, I was just, I graduated high college at 20. Right. So I just turned 21 at that point. He said, uh, I can get you a job down there for the summer. You might as well go to work. So I go to work at the Bureau of Vocational Rehabilitation. They got this young kid. They give me the worst caseload there. I had 400 clients. They gave me a case. Somebody had left six months earlier. Nobody had paid attention to any of their clients. And I had 400 cases, people waiting for prosthetic limbs. Uh, I mean, just a whole. But I thought it was kind of an interesting job, and I, you know, I threw myself into it. And at the end of the summer, I went in to see the head of the office in Cincinnati. And I said, you know, I'm going to have to leave because I'm, my draft board wants me to show up on September you know, 21st. And they said, what happens if we can get you an out, we can get you an occupational deferment? Would you stay here and work? And I said, sure. I like the work, actually. Right, it's pretty yeah, interesting. Right. It wasn't my career path, but I'll <laughs> compare it to going in the So the governor of Ohio, at that time his name was Jim Rhodes, wrote a letter to my draft board saying we need this person. And this, is a, this is a valuable position, and it's hard to fill. And, and my my draft board gave me an occupational deferment. And you did not have to go. No. And then the next year, to end this up, the next year, the dra- the uh, the lottery came in. There was a lottery. Right, right, The war right. was still going on a year later. And the lottery came in, and they picked, it was on the radio, and everybody sat around the radio listening to them drawing the numbers. So they would draw, you know, right. May 22nd was number one. June 2nd was number two. And I had called my draft board. And it asked them, what number will you draft up to? And they said, up to 118. If you got 118 or... Oh, yeah. Right. You have to listen. And I got uh, 286. This is... So I didn't get drafted, and I gave up my ocup- I gave up my occupational... Job. Deferment. And, right. And took another job at a halfway house for ex-convicts. And we're going to leave it there, folks, because that's a cliffhanger. Um, back after these words with Arnie Sherman, our co-host and guest. We'll be back next week with part two of the Arnie Sherman story here on What Do You Know? See you next week, Arnie. Hopefully I'll be back. Thank you for listening to What Do You Know? I can't wait for the next show, Scott. I'm excited too, Arnie. If you'd like to suggest a guest, send me an email at scottrichman at townsquaremedia.com. We'll see you next week. And thanks for listening to News Talk KGVO. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, 
you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.